this morning. We've got a full show, listeners. All right. Today's program, Stephanie Campbell and Susan Johnson of Compassionate Choices are going to be tracking California and federal legislation and judicial rulings that affect bodily autonomy around needed end-of-life options. And details for following up with this rich trove of resources that their organization produces, they're available at the CompassionateChoices.org. But we'll hear about that. Then we'll hear from Anna Miles, director of a wayward artist production entitled In the Green by playwright Grace McLean, who hails from Santa Ana, folks. But she's a big Apple girl right now. The show opened last Friday and continues through April 30th. So we'll be back. Stay tuned. We'll start right now. Our guests in this segment are Stephanie Campbell and Susan Johnston, volunteers very active in Compassion and Choices. We'll consider recent California legislation and other measures around the land, as well as take some stock of sociocultural factors that affect the agency one has at the end of life. Stephanie Campbell, having appeared in various capacities in the past, will speak today as a volunteer for Compassion and Choices. She is also a founding member of the Orange County chapter of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. She served as president of the chapter and a former member of the National Board of Trustees, where she chaired the governance committee. She's the county action coordinator for Compassion Choices and speaks around the county for both organizations like right now. Her work with the ACLU in Southern California includes the role of officer on the Southern California Regional Council, and she's a certified speaker for ACLU on religious rights, reproductive rights, and gay rights. She was a board member of Planned Parenthood, a tutor for illiterate adults through the Reed Orange County program, and a board member for Women for Orange County, as well as Friends of Costa Mesa Libraries. A little background on Susan Johnston. She earned her BA and her master's and doctorate of education degrees from UCLA. She taught at UCLA's campus elementary school and then moved to California State University at Dominguez Hills, where she served as professor of education for 39 years in the Graduate College of Education. She also served as a consultant to community colleges on the topics of effective instruction and curriculum design in an effort to increase the rate of student success. And she's been an active volunteer with Compassion Choices since 2015 with the purpose of passing the end of life option legislation in California, one of the big topics today we'll have together. She's now serving as an Orange County co-action team leader and community outreach volunteer informing the public how to access the end of life option act. Stephanie comes to us today from her home in Costa Mesa and Susan in Fountain Valley. We're recording this Monday, April 17th. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Susan Johnston, and welcome back, Stephanie Campbell. Thank you for having us, Claudia. Thank you. That was Stephanie first and Susan second. Well, I've covered this topic with staff from Compassion and Choices on several past programs. I'd like, though, to start with both of you offering your personal attests to why this personal autonomy at end of life is so critical for outcomes for your loved ones and for you as survivors. I'd like to honor their struggle and your struggle with having you talk to that first. Well, I will start with this. This is Stephanie. And I became involved with Compassion and Choices 
in order to get the End of Life Option Act passed. And subsequent to that, my husband developed cancer and ultimately was able, because of this law, to use medical aid in dying. And I am committed to this to see that people have the autonomy to choose how they end their life, when they end their life, with whom they end their life, when they are suffering from a disease where there is no recovery. Thank you, Stephanie. Susan? Yeah, so I became concerned about end-of-life empowerment with my mother, um, and she wasn't even ill yet. She lived to be 103, but she was very, very concerned that she would have autonomy at the end of her life. So I promised I would do whatever I could, and that search led me to compassion and choices. And I realized that we all desire to live our lives with dignity and to be able to make personal choices throughout our lives and at the end of our life. And personally, if I were in pain with a terminal illness, I would want the option to end my suffering with the help of a supportive medical professional. And uh, medical aid in dying also allows me to protect my family from having to endure witnessing a protracted illness also, which I think is something that's often not mentioned is the impact on the family. So yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of Compassionate Choices and I value what they do and how they are helping people. Yeah. So before I stumble on the, you know, awkward references and word choice and all that, in your work, are there terms that contribute clarity as opposed to terms that confound this movement for bodily autonomy at the end of life? Because I, I want to make sure like medical aid at the end of life and all, I, maybe there's some terms you really like and there's some terms that you really want to sort of like set a torch to and, and for all time. Well, I, this is Susan. I uh, think medical aid in dying and the acronym is MAID, M-A-I-D, but is a very powerful term to use because it explains exactly what happens at the end of life. So I think Steph may have her own priority terms, but for me, medical aid in dying is a very uh, helpful way to refer to it. And what I would talk about is the negative side. It is a huge problem when people refer to this as physician-assisted suicide. And if we could eliminate that, uh, it would be extremely helpful. I think it is important that people recognize that people who are taking the medication for this are not committing suicide. They are dying of some horrible disease, and that is why they are ending their life. And you can only have to go to look at death certificates, and they never have on the death certificate, person took medical aid in dying and committed suicide. It's always this person died of cancer or whatever the particular disease is. So that I think is very important. Well, that's interesting. So the medical institutions are, they get to the actual, the primary cause of the death. And then they make that. That is correct. Susan, you were saying? Oh, I was going to say that it's actually written into the law of Senate Bill 380 that it is 
not considered to be any of the following, suicide, assisted suicide, homicide, or euthanasia. So it's a legal distinction. And the people who choose medical aid in dying are not choosing to die, as Steph said. The disease is, they're already dying. And I think when people understand that distinction, it makes a big difference. So I guess I want to stay in this general picture and hop away from the California state for a moment and address this, put us in a relationship to what other progressive nations are codifying that most nations where individuals need, where in California, they need to have a terminal diagnosis to get access to medical assistance and dying. Instead, they just have to have a serious illness, a disease or a disability that puts them in an advanced state of decline that can't be reversed and causes intractable suffering. So that's where other countries are. And so, but we need a particular terminal diagnosis in California. That is correct. And in other countries, it, it certainly varies. I know that there are people that go to Europe to use this if they don't have it available in their own state, because this is a state law and not a federal law. And I'm somewhat envious of the those places where they will go and they'll get an injection and that's it. Uh, they don't have to go through the whole medical, the whole prescription situation, which is, you know, multiple drugs and there's always concern over overtaking the drugs and how people are going to react to them. And it just seems much more humane to do it through uh, having a physician there giving you an injection and you're done. But that is not what we have here. And I cannot foresee it ever being that way here. Oh, wow. And I remember in the documentary that the daughter filmed her father's taking all these steps in the San Fernando Valley. And the title is lost on me right now. But if anybody want to understand the protracted sorts of stepping stones and all that, and how it was such an awkward exercise for family members, it illustrates the point you're making, Stephanie. That is true. It is. There are a number of steps. Uh, SB 380 reduced the time for these steps. Well, we'll talk about the whole thing. I just want to mention just the film. The film personifies just how very, very clunky it is versus right. what you said, UNV, what some Western European countries make a much more. It doesn't make the medicinal piece the centerpiece. It makes the leaving of the person, the autonomy, you know, in Europe. That's that's the central thing. And also is, in Canada. And Canada, too. So let's then talk about, unless, oh, Susan, did you have something you wanted to add to that, where where we are in relationship, where other countries aren't making this such a contorted kind of arrangement? No. <laughs> okay. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Stephanie Campbell and Susan Johnston, both very active in Compassionate Choices and moving legislation along in California closer to the finish line for needed end-of-life options, including medical aid and dying. So let's go to California's Senate Bill 380, the End-of-Life Option Act. It was signed into law by the governor on October 2021 that made some important corrections. So let's talk about that. And Stephanie already gave a nod to partly that the waiting period was shortened. There's many different pieces but it's not everything. So let's talk about what happened with 
California's SB 380 being codified at the end of 2021. Susan, do you want to start? Sure. There was a mandatory minimum waiting period of uh, 15 days, and that now was shortened to 48 hours that one has to make a second verbal request to a physician, and then the medication can then be ordered. Um, they found that there were people who were suffering and needlessly, and those 15 days just dragged on. And another change is that healthcare systems and hospices are now required by the new law, SP 380, to post their policies related to medical aid and dying on their public websites. Because people, it was not a transparent process. And there are still healthcare systems that bury that statement on how they approach end of life. Susan, did you want to bring up if there are some local systems that we ought to be calling out here? Well, I'm not quite ready to do that, Steph. Are we? Um, well, I, I did some research on hospices and hospitals to see how well they were uh, yeah. showing this. Mm -hmm. And as you may know, I used Valley Oaks Hospice when my husband was dying and they have always had and medical aid in dying right on the, fr the front of their website. You can't miss it. And so I, I was interested to see how other hospices and hospitals and other organizations approach this. So one of the things that I did was I went to the Hoke Hospital's website because there had been the lawsuit that they won that separated them from the Catholic hospital. And I was curious as to whether they had got something on their website about medical aid and dying. And they don't actually have anything that is clear. You can dig around and they, they talk about wanting to basically do what people want and make the end of life easy, but they don't let you know whether or not they support medical aid in dying, whether they let their doctors or other staff members assist in providing the medication. So I thought that that was interesting. And I found the same thing with hospices where they kind of tiptoed around it or they had a page that specifically said, we do not support this and don't come here if that's what you want. So it's been interesting. And I think one of the challenges with the California law is going to be to have more medical groups and hospitals and hospices come out in favor of this and let people know that this is a place that you can go. Is this kind of an ombuds kind of question that these institutions are more transparent with their practices? I think so, yes. Okay. Um, and I think that there needs to be work done where people probably from Compassion and Choices are going to reach out to the hospitals and say, hey, this is what the law says and we don't find it on your website and get your act together. It would be interesting to be able to divide up hospitals in the area that say that you know are supportive, but they don't really want to come out and say it because they think that that might not be advantageous to them. And then there are those that you know that are opposed. I believe that Kaiser is still very much 
in the camp of being supportive. I did not go to their website to see if it said anything. Okay. Yeah, it's one thing to have a law. It's another one to enforce it. So there's that awkward gap. Yes. So that, yeah, it's, it's a, transparency is a work in progress to enforce that. So the waiting period, the 15 days to 48 hours, it was critical because some people, uh, Stephanie mentioned that that made people wait in greater pain and, and they were subjected to more. But sometimes I learned from many of the webinars with Compassion Choices, some people don't, they die before that 15 day period is over. So they don't have an option. That That is true. And one thing that I would like to say, and I know this applies to patients who have advanced cancer, that it moves faster than you think it's going to. So that when you start the process, you're feeling okay, but you know that your time is is limited, but you think you have time. And then before you know it, you become desperate because you, you have so much pain and you want it to be over. And going into it, you don't always realize that. So I think that it was very helpful to reduce it from 15 days to 48 hours. I don't know that, I'm sure that there are arguments against doing going from 15 days to 48 hours, but it seems to me that if you are going to allow someone to do this, uh, what difference does it make if you give them 15 days or 48 hours? 48 hours is by far uh, more preferable. Well, you point out though, with this, overwhelmment of managing these ravaging diseases, it's it's not manageable to be figuring out whether a healthcare institution is going to honor MAID at that facility. So that it's enough to manage the disease. And so that clerical step of going through and finding out what are the practices, it's sort of, it's an additional burden that is just beyond what a patient can handle or the patient's family. That I just... That was a thought I had. Susan? Uh, well, yes, you're right. And that's why we counsel people that as soon as they get a diagnosis to start researching which facility or hospice will be supportive. But what I was going to say before was that a desired change in the new law that did not take place was the retraction of the 10-year sunset clause. And that was a big disappointment for us. And this means that in 2031, there's going to be new legislation required. Right, of January 1, the beginning of 2031 is the sunsetting. So, and that, but that was a concern when I was sitting in other webinars with Compassionate Choices is that, was that a necessary element of the legislation to get as many legislators on board to improve the End of Life Option Act? Yeah, go ahead, Steph. I guess I would say that I, I am assuming that that was a negotiation that will give you the 48 hours if you give us the sunset. The problem with the sunset, as I see it, is that the champions that we had in the state Senate and the state assembly are all going to be termed out. And we are now going to be in the position of looking for new champions to pursue another version of this law, which I dearly hope will eliminate the sunset so that we don't have to keep going back and doing the same fight over and over again. 
That's a gamble, though. We don't know who those legislators are going to be. Correct. It could go either way. Headwinds, tailwinds. Susan? Well, I was going to say that's, that was a real unfortunate trade-off if that was the case, that the 48 hours for the sunset clause, that's, that was a major problem. So, And also, in a kind of a nod to how I ever set up this radio program, that I, I'm always trying to make my guests be real examples of running with initiative, getting stuff done. And so Compassion Choices was on the legislative floor. There were so many one-on-ones all of you had with legislators to bring them on board and get that finished by the, the, the late summer of 2021. Do you want, do you have any, like any personal story you could say about, yeah, if it weren't for me being down there, you know, we'd still be back in the, the previous kind of law. Um, I, I don't think I have anything like that to say, but in doing, you know, part of the problem was, you know, we're, we're working in COVID and all of that. So that makes life more difficult. I would say that the influence of religious groups to oppose this law, particularly, I would say, Catholic groups and evangelical Christian groups who strongly oppose the law and feel that the law is immoral was a big part of the problem in getting this passed. And, you know, my rebuttal to to these people is that, you know, you should not inflict your morality on me and I won't inflict mine on you. And it, it's the same argument that I have when it, when it comes to abortion. You don't want one, don't have one. Right. Well, that's an important part of this cultural aspect of autonomy at the end of life. Are you finding there are opportunities with all of the breakthroughs in state constitutional situations around the country, it's giving us a really good gauge of how the voting public values bodily autonomy. Are these coalescing opportunities, are they starting to show up with compassion and choices? I don't really see them starting to show up. I think that from my observation is that when you look at how people are voting in regards particularly to abortion, you see that people do not want that restricted to the extent that some states are trying to restrict that. And I think that the incredible win by the Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin is just a perfect example of this. And Kansas did Kansas, last year. Yes, yeah. Kansas did. And as I say, Wisconsin just did that. And right. the Supreme Court justice ran on the position that she was going to get abortion legalized. Well, she court. made that. She made yes. that a way in which Supreme Court justices can renew their, their terms on, right. on the, the, that bench. So let's talk about that, that. Another part of that cultural piece, though, is that where diverse communities don't believe that end-of-life healthcare movement is one that they belong to, and the communities of color are greatly impacted and have to confront the disparities caused by the lack of prevention. So how are you seeing that cultural piece in your work here in California with Compassion and Choices? I 
personally, I'm not seeing it here in Orange County, but I do know that statewide Compassion and Choices is really working with communities of color to increase the education of this. And it is, I think, somewhat unfortunate that for Susan and I, we end up talking to old white people and we are not talking to people of color. And I think that that education needs to go to that community. And quite frankly, I'm not sure how to do greater outreach there. Interesting. Okay. On the clipboard. So let's talk then. There's pending in the federal legislation. It's the new Drug Enforcement Administration proposed rule that could ban healthcare providers from prescribing controlled medications via telemedicine if they've not conducted an in-person medical evaluation first. So this is another overlap with providing an uh, a medicated abortion as well as this telemedicine restriction, but requiring the in-person evaluation first for end-of-life kinds of options. So, so let me give you an example of that, Claudia. When my husband was going through the medical aid and dying process, he had an interview, which was an in-person interview with the primary physician. And then part of the way that the law works is you also have to meet with a second physician before you can get your prescription. And we did the second interview through a FaceTime interview. And if this goes into effect where you cannot do that second interview that way, there are two problems with it. One, the person can be so sick that they don't feel able to travel to an in-person interview. And the second thing is that if you have your second physician at a different part of the state, that becomes hugely problematic. Our second physician was in the Bay Area, and which is why we did FaceTime. And I, I just see that as, as an enormous problem, making the process more difficult than it needs to be. An intentional barrier to deprive right. people of those options. Susan, did you want to also comment on how I, I that administrative rule that could be a real jam here? Yeah, I was just thinking if there could be a legal challenge, I was wondering to whom the challenge would be directed because it is a denial of some basic human rights there and excluding some people from access to the law. And I need to educate myself a little bit more on what a remedy would be for that. And the confounding problem is that it's a federal rule that it doesn't matter what any one state has legislated, that's a blanket approach to healthcare delivery. And that trumps every state, huh? That's that's, that's the problem, yeah. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Stephanie Campbell and Susan Johnston, both active volunteers with Compassion and Choices, as we're talking about both the California setting, as well as now we've moved into what are some federal provisions that could, as Susan said, trump what states have already codified differently. And they're 
there are states, there are many states that have advanced this end of life options. I think there are, we're up at about 13 states, I think it is. So that's a trend, correct? I think that it is a trend. I think that you can map it against the trend on abortion availability and abortion restrictions and put them put them right on top of each other and you're going to see the same result. Okay. So there is the additional challenge to the federal conscience rule that would also um, change the rules increasing access to care and prevent discrimination. Do you want to talk about the conscience rule? I would love to talk about the conscience okay. rule. <laughs> So um, the conscience rule was something that was implemented by the Trump administration. It was not done in law, but by executive order. And it was challenged, I am proud to say, by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And many parts of that were eliminated. However, there are still issues with people in medical environments who can say, I don't like you because of X, Y, Z, whether it's because you're a person of color, you're gay, you're transgender, whatever it is. And so I do not wish to serve you. And that transitions over into the support for medical aid and dying, where a nurse could say, I'm not going to work with you because you support medical aid and dying, so I'm not going to do anything for you. And that is just an enormous problem and that needs to get resolved. As a personal note, it's many, many years ago when um, I actually had a miscarriage and the, the obstetric nurse, when I had that man, this is an early term, the first term, but, and she, and I said, oh my goodness, this is going to take me out of uh, my political work. And she said, good thing. So it's sort of oh, like they, oh so it, it's, it does happen. They don't abide by the do no harm. They do weigh in with their, their political preferences. So, I mean, that, that was, I didn't think I'd bring that up, but it, they, they have a lot to say about other people's care and politics it has nothing to do with getting our own care. That is definitely true. And even down to the notion of having a receptionist in a medical clinic saying, well, you're violating my beliefs, so we're not going to even check you into this hospital or doctor's office. That uh, kind of power a gatekeeper has. Yeah. I'm stunned. Susan, did you have additional kinds of oh, observations? I just, I just find it so incredible that these people would be the first to complain if someone told them what they could or couldn't do. It's just so frustrating. Yeah. Well, I would like for you to we had before us the California federal case on death doulas, full circle of living and dying versus Sanchez. This is death doulas in the state of California, not as central as some of the other kinds of aspects of healthcare delivery, but death doulas, they do advocate where patients may be feeling underrepresented in their own healthcare delivery. So did you, either of you have anything to say about that pending case? Well, my understanding is that most of it has been resolved and there is still the issue of what kind of certificate death doulas need to have to operate. So the death doula certification still has to go to trial, but 
The death doula role, I think, is very interesting. I know that Compassion and Choices is very interested in death doulas and someone who is very prominent in Compassion and Choices, Stephanie Elkins, is now running an organization that is supporting death doulas. And I attended a webinar that they conducted on this. And my take on it was that there was much more concern about the family than there was about the patient who was dying. And that was of great concern to me. It was not something I was expecting. And, you know, they they talked about after the person passes, the value of, of washing the body and doing that as part of the family. And that was just not something I personally could relate to. But I can see the role, though, when we're talking about diverse communities not seeing that you know, they're, they're needing perhaps more championing of end-of-life options, and the death doula could have a role in directing attention, certain attentions, and advocating that might be missing with how the family's equipped. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that I saw about the case was, and, and let me just read you this, Thank you. this quote. Uh, it says, we have the right to earn an honest living by educating, guiding, and assisting consumers in how to care for a deceased loved one's body in a home environment. I am personally more concerned about getting the loved one to the point where they are deceased than what to do with the body after. <laughs> point well taken. I clearly understand that. Susan, anything more to add to that? No, I just think that um, there needs to be a great deal more compassion and tolerance for people assisting those who are at the end of life, including the doulas. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Well, as we wind down, I, I just want to give a nod to Barbara Combs Lee, who was the author of Oregon's landmark enabling legislation. She spoke of the trends that she, and I'm going to quote her, she is, quote, enormously optimistic about the future of the movement because of its wide acceptance among people in every demographic and of every political orientation. And on that note, people can do more with that. I'd like for both of you to give us some ways of the best following what Compassion and Choices offers in terms of the clinical, because you talked about counseling happens with people getting ready, preparing, and the political and other valuable materials. Where would you direct listeners, Steph and Susan? Well, the, the uh, Compassion and Choices website has tremendous resources, and they have recordings of webinars and podcasts so that people can be empowered to learn more about it. There's resources for patients, physicians, and family members. They have an end of life decisions guide and toolkit. They have a toolkit to guide people to have a conversation with their clinician. And they have a doc-to-doc -doc consultation program so that primary doctors or specialists can consult and learn more about medical aid in dying. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, but it's a great resource. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I would just like to add that people 
if they are supportive of this issue, they really should consider donating to Compassionate Choices, and they can do that on the website as well. There's so many webinars. I've, I've really learned a great deal from them. So it's such an instructional tool that in the written form and in the audio visual form, and it's all archived for people who think, oh, wait a minute, I missed all that. There's a, a YouTube account that Compassionate Choices has for people to see recordings of previous webinars. Yes. And Google also can take you right to it. Okay, great. Well, I want to thank you both for your important work and your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us, Claudia. Thank you. My guests were Stephanie Campbell and Susan Johnston, active in Compassionate Choices and getting us all closer to the finish line for the autonomy needed in end-of-life options. An extension of this interview will be available on my website, askaleader.com. We'll be right back with Anna Miles, Los Angeles-based director, actor, writer, and artist, speaking about her director role at Wayward Productions, the play entitled In the Green. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Anna Miles, LA-based director, actor, writer, and artist, speaking about her directorial role in the green at Wayward Productions. The play opened this last weekend, and it runs till April 30th. A product of a Sacramento upbringing, note to Lady Bird, she completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Creative Writing and Theater from Northwestern University and her Master's of Fine Arts from Brown University, Trinity Repertory Company's programs in acting and directing. For the while she settled into Southern California, after pursuing a career in acting, she's shifting her focus to directing, productions of which include Daddy Long Legs, the musical in Studio City, A Sad Tale's Best for Winter, her self-written feminist adaptation of Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, several storytelling and cabaret events, avant-garde film projects, and immersive performance art experiences, including the interactive Instagram art installation piece, hashtag never alone, featured in the AV Club and its companion film piece, Cassandra Questions and Answers Q&A. She founded an LA-based feminist art collective theater company called Beating of Wings. She comes to us today from Los Angeles, and we are recording this Monday, April 17th. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Anna Miles. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Well, thank you. In the Green, the play, the musical venture here, tells the liberally and expressively adapted origin story of one of medieval history's most prolific voices, Hildegard von Bingen, pardon, that's not German enough, that pronunciation, before <laughs> she became known as one of the first recorded female leaders of her age through her work as a healer, mystic composer, and finally a saint, Hildegard van Bingen was a little girl locked in a cloister's cell with her mentor, Jutta van Sponheim, after demonstrating a preternatural sensitivity to the world around her. And that that's sort of the beginning, that's sort of the setting of where it's going to be at Wayward Productions. So after reading the play, 
I'm really intrigued because I haven't seen it yet, which is my my usual practice to see it first. It's going to be really interesting to see how you put all these elements together. <laughs> and so tell us a bit. I mean, there's language, there's character. And when I say language, it's, there's like really ridiculous and fresh anachronisms that pop out to me, character, trajectory, and all kinds of setting devices. So talk about all those elements and you put them down in one production. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, as you said, there are so many different elements that all converge into one to tell this story. Most notably, the I keep telling this story over and over again, but it's it feels very relevant to me. I when I first was offered the job to direct this show, I went and just looked up the summary of the play and saw that the role, the character of Hildegard, was played by three actors who were portraying her eye, her hand, and her mouth, respectively. Um, and as soon as I saw that, I, I was in. I absolutely jumped at the chance. That's my favorite kind of thing to direct. Um, that's what the sort of expressively adapted phrase is referring to in that it's really rich in, in symbolism, in imagery that takes the storytelling very much out of a place of just literalism and really into this place of a deeper sort of visceral human consciousness, almost a surrealist, dreamlike, really poetic, expressive version of what it means to be a human, what it means to feel broken apart by traumatic circumstances of your life. It sort of takes those abstract concepts of being broken, of feeling disjointed within oneself. It takes those abstract concepts and really makes them concrete in a really interesting way. So of course you have this element of poetic symbolism which presents the very exciting challenge of how do you make it clear that these characters are both a literal hand, a literal eye, and a literal mouth, and also a human being together. You have these elements combined with, like you said, this really incredibly rich language, which some of it comes from some of Hildegard's actual historical works, but a lot of it is just from the playwright, Grace McLean, uh, and her sort of very incredible uh, synthesis of music and language. So you have you have this poetic language, one of my absolute favorite um, lines, which is a really good example of that kind of language is, you will understand how the boulder becomes sand and you will understand how not to become sand. And of course that line is not explained any further. It's just sort of given to us to explore um, and figure out for ourselves. Um, so it's about it's about bringing those all of those elements together. I think the biggest for me, it's very exciting to have something where every element is rich and extensive in and of itself, so that when they all come together and inform each other, it's even more exciting. And we're trying to bring out that language, bring out the musical elements in the design. So for example, we have a sand pit on stage with real sand that our actors get to play around with and, and have fun with the whole show, representing that specific line of um, learning about boulders becoming sand. And I think, you know, all around, it's just, it's a really fun experiment of sort of the immersion of, of every piece coming at you from every corner to tell the story. And does that intimate 99-seat theater mm -hmm. give you a, sort of a leg up with the 
the kind of cell construct of this mm -hmm. ascetic sort of leader in Hildegard's life. Yes, absolutely. I think that the intimate setting that we're staging our production in um, is very well suited to this specific story because it is both the bare bones of the play, but also specifically how we're interpreting it and performing it. For example, including live vocal looping that happens live every single night. So it's different every single night. We're inviting the audience into to share an experience with us that is unique and different every time. And that feels like you're you're going on this journey really with Hildegard and her disparate parts. We really, with the scenic element, we wanted to make it feel like audiences were stepping into this cell with her, that they were becoming part of this story. You know, we have like a whole altar to Hildegard set up as you're walking in to really establish that immersive element um, to get audiences to be sort of part of the story rather than just simply watching the story from outside. And so beside that physical introduction, is there a personable introduction that lets the audience members know you're in for something quite extraordinary and you're invited to liberate your sort of passive audience participation into being allowed to do more than that? Open up to and be a part of this. Yeah, um, we so part of the um, altar that you enter through visually into the space, we have what's called our secret station, which we we had we hosted an event uh, as part of the first Saturday Art Walk in Santa Ana. That was we did an installation inspired by the show and we did this there and people really responded to it. So we brought it into the show as well, which is you're invited when you walk in to write down one of your own secrets on a piece of paper and bury it in the sand. And then the idea is that you are sharing that with the altar of Hildegard and Hildegard is keeping that secret safe for you. So you're in some ways invited to, and you can choose not to, or if you want to, but you're invited to walk through some of your own darkness, perhaps, you know, interact with your own secret self as you're entering into the space, which of course is the baseline of what the show is about is confronting the sort of dark side of yourself, the things that you don't want to acknowledge, the things that feel too painful to walk through, the secrets that we keep from ourselves more than anything. So it's our hope with that, that we're setting up this expectation for the audience to become more engaged with the storytelling as it goes on. And this storytelling, the time frame is really extensive too. Yes. So you, you move everybody through that. Yes. Um, the time frame that takes place, you know, it takes place over 30 years and the show is 80 minutes long. So it's definitely a fascinating experience. But the the way that we, you know, do our best to show that and demonstrate that and really feel the passage of time in the space is just by using and highlighting the music that Grace McLean already put in place for that. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the storytelling with time passing, all of the storytelling comes from the sort of innate feelings that music can stir up inside of you almost subliminally that you don't even realize. So if we're creating the sounds that make it feel on the inside that time is passing, 
the hope is that, you know, it will create this sort of authentic experience of time feeling that it is passing, even though it's only been 30 seconds in real time. My guest, if you just joined us, is Los Angeles-based director, actor, writer, and artist, Anna Miles. She's a director of In the Green, a production at Wayward Artists, and she's given a nod. The playwright is Grace McLean, music direction by Diane King Van, and choreographer Emily May Camp. So you're you're making it very clear from the read. Sometimes you get the impression there's a dynamic here that gives me a sort of a political takeaway. And mm-hmm. you you're here to say, wait, watch this immersion, and you're going to get more of this mysticism, spirituality coming. It's not a collision between the ascetic Juta character versus Hildegard and her sort of emerging mm-hmm. her own uh, mystical movement. Yeah, it's absolutely this sort of, it it feels, you know, obviously there are a lot of, I think, political takeaways from the storytelling, but at its heart to me, it really is about this really fundamental personal experience of healing or the lack of healing Mm -hmm. from traumatic experiences, especially in instances where we have very little resources with which to accomplish that. So while this play is very much you know, it's set in its very own time and space. It really does not feel particularly connected or tethered to its time period of, you know, medieval Germany. It also very intentionally secularizes the experience. So, you know, the Catholic church is never referred to. It's always referred to as the community. So it's sort of intentionally made more universal in that aspect. It is still reckoning with the fact that, you know, in medieval Germany, people, and in particular women, would not have had access to or any resources or recourse with which to manage or deal with traumatic experiences. And it uses that and sort of parallels it with the ways in which still today we often are not given or do not have the emotional or even social resources at our disposal to deal with those those traumatic events and the ways that they affect us at the most deepest level. So it does pit this character of Yuta who deals with her trauma by trying to suppress it at all costs versus this character of Hildegard who comes in and very much embraces the pain, walks through it to get to the other side and the dichotomy between those two things. So talk about the, any kind of challenges, revelations, the product of the all of the performers, and I'm including cast, I'm including set people, everybody. Talk mm-hmm. about how those help put together to make this whole. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I mean, I think this start every everyone on the team, cast and crew, are absolutely amazing. I think what. Um, was helpful from the beginning is that everyone was really on board with and understood that we wanted to create a very collaborative, cohesive piece, rather than sometimes it can get really segmented in theater as, you know, the set, the set designer is doing the set and we're not involved with that. And the cast is doing the acting and we're not involved with that. And sometimes that, that, that is what works best. But for this show, we really wanted a more holistic approach and everyone involved was really excited to jump on board with that. Obviously the actors um, in the show, we have five actors and that is, 
you know, pretty much most of them are on stage the whole time in some form or another. It's really a incredible, magnificent feat what these five actors are accomplishing, especially with regards to how difficult the music is. Um, so it's it's just an exercise in virtuosity and stamina in some ways. But I think what's amazing is I've felt so free to sort of let the actors take over the storytelling now that we're open because we all have this shared understanding of taking collective responsibility for telling this story. So I know that they're going to fill in those gaps as they come throughout the production with things that really make sense from this collective thing. All along, we all just said, the thing I went into production meetings, first rehearsal, all of these things with was this idea that I wanted us to create together a unique, never before seen liminal space in which we could tell this story. And I think that the whole team was really successful at that throughout. So the vocal looping mm -hmm. now is that that's, there's a number of things. The vocal looping, I'm thinking of like, is that like a, like a jazz solo or is that, do they have some kinds of uh, ordeals with sort of how, how to work with that? And then are they sort of looping back to each other and they're kind of challenging each other with each new performance? It's, it's a real work in progress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our vocal looper, in some productions, the cast playing the characters are themselves doing the vocal looping. So they're, you know, singing into the, you know, whatever the mechanical or uh, digital devices to loop those vocals. But for us, we have a separate person who is only doing the live vocal looping at every performance. Um, so it really, because of that, it really is very similar to what you described. It's this give and take of any constant between our looper, between the cast, between the live musicians on stage. Everything is technically the same, right? It's what we set, but just the very nature of its liveness means that, you know, every night no one really knows exactly what to expect when they step on that stage. So it makes it this collective discovery that's always happening. Well, that's wonderful. I can't wait. The details include that this is continuing. It started last Friday and it continues. So the performances are Thursday, Friday, Saturday evenings at 7.30, Sundays at 2 p.m. It ends on April 30th. It's at the Grand Central Theater at the Grand Central Arts Center at 125 North Broadway, Santa Ana. And for more details, people can go to where I always send them, thewaywardartist.org for more details. So thank you, Anna Miles. Congratulations on this production. Thank you for your time today. Of course, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. My guest was Anna Miles, the director for In the Green at Wayward Productions. The playwright is Grace McLean, and the music direction is Diane King Van and choreographer Emily Maycamp. It's Grace McLean doing the Eve track in the Wayward Artist production. But of course, Anna had more to say. We will hear from her in the extended version of the podcast. And she talks about Grace. Grace McLean is from Santa Ana over at the Big Apple now. So next week, we're going to hear from Ocord Executive Director Ellie Flores. And we're going to also hear from board member 
of Women for Orange County, Felicity Figueroa, about the annual Great American Write-In returning to the community after a three-year hiatus. And so Stephanie Campbell, my first guest, she'll be there wearing her many several activists hats. Talk with you next week. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. Welcome gifts.